0: Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of Lowdown. Today I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Pitch32 co-founder and former head of strategy for the FA, Dave Redden, to discuss his illustrious career today. Dave, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks, Connor. Great to be with you today.
0: Dave, of course, before we focus on your illustrious past, um, tell me a bit more about what you're getting up to on the day-to-day basis with Pitch32.
1: Yeah, so um, Pitch32 was formed uh, 12, 18 months ago. Um, it's a small group of us who've spent our lives doing very different things in and around sport um, with the fundamental aim of working with investors uh, in football who, who really want to disrupt the status quo. So having worked across lots of different sports over nearly 30 years, um, I suppose I, I still have a core belief that We can always get better at how we do things and we've definitely seen an awful lot of maybe what i would call emotional investors in football over the years i think what we're also seeing now is the emergence of more what i would call professional investors people who want to see a return on that investment sometimes that return means financial other times that means uh, leaving a legacy or something more permanent behind and we're working with those types of investors who want to consider maybe a more diverse perspective to, to, to football ownership. So it's been a big learning journey for me, trying to, you know, understand uh, the investment side of, of football, um, but also really satisfying because you know, satisfied a lot of intellectual curiosity I've had about ownership groups and um and hopefully in the future that'll that'll transpire into something exciting in terms of. Uh, some of the projects we're currently working in
0: and speaking of the status quo as we discussed off camera Dave I mean it's certainly been changed in the last well past 12 to 18 months really and news with recent takeovers which we'll touch upon later on Mm. in the pod but um just out of curiosity I mean how did a young Dave Redden come into football what was perhaps your earliest football memory
1: well I, I played football from crikey as far back as I can remember so um my mum still lives in the house I was I was uh, brought up in, and opposite that little 3 bedroom detached was a school field, which was about fifteen yards from our front door. So, I started playing football there in the field with with my mates, and football was always the game. I played at school, I played for the county, and um, you know I went on and played um, at university for British universities and all that sort of thing, and then I. Had one of those classic journeyman semi pro careers from a bit of conference and then sort of fell down the ladder. So I've always been a football lover. I'm crikey, I'm 52 now. So I'm one of the most, those old gits who can remember the, I don't know, the Wednesday nights watching Liverpool playing Borussia much and back in the 70s when there was nothing else on the telly and the whole world seemed like they were watching the match. And then you'd go out afterwards and replay it with your mates in the field. So like, like lots of kids, I dreamed of being a, a player. And uh, like many kids as well, at some point, the brutal reality is that you, you're never going to make it. And I was, I was, I guess, lucky enough to have the opportunity to go and follow some sort of parallel paths that eventually led me back to, to working in football.
0: And just judging by the decor behind you on the video screen, you know, you've not only, it's not only been football, which has been a huge part of your life. I mean, you've had some wonderful experiences, most notably with the British and Irish lines, being part of Clive Woodward's 2003 World Cup win with England Rugby and Team GB with the Olympics. I hope I'm not forgetting anything there. But I suppose, you know, reverting back to football prior to taking over at the FA in 2014, how foundational or those experiences to the practices and methods you would later employ working within the FA?
1: Yeah, um, I mean, I guess all of us um, take something from every experience that, that that we've been fortunate enough to be part of. So some of the ones you've mentioned that are the high-profile ones. Um, some of my more foundational experiences probably happened after university so I studied at Loughborough uh, did an undergrad and then a master's degree there and then you know that was back in 1991 when I graduated from the master's degree which was kind of at the very very early stages of um, what we might now call performance support to, to governing bodies there just wasn't very much in place there so in those very early days I was fortunate enough to get one of the first what they were called sports science support roles in sports. So I got a chance to work with everything from East Midlands canoeing to Derby County cricket to a bit with Nottingham forest when Harry Bassett was, was, was manager so lots and lots of experiences where I made huge numbers of mistakes. So, you know, you can imagine a young practitioner who walks out with a master's degree and you've got you know your, your head full of textbooks and and virtually no practical experience other than the stuff you've done yourself um and i was really lucky to walk into an environment where people were kind to me they, they allowed me to to make some mistakes and probably at the time because there was a lack of alternatives people were quite grateful for the help um it, i was encouraged to to, to, to try more so I guess what I found very early on, leaning into the football thing, was that football. Uh, at that time, I did some things like pre-seasons with Leicester City when we were at the university. We used to help with them. I mentioned the Knott's Forest stuff. It was still fairly resistant to outside help. They'd you know come and do a bit of fitness testing for pre-season. Come and do a bit of, you know, conditioning during that period of time, but. wasn't a sort of holistic buy-in to to, too much of it um and I was this you know 75 kilo dripping wet skinny footballer who then got a chance to go and work at Leicester Tigers who trained on a Tuesday and a Thursday evening so some of those experiences making lots of mistakes very early on um were really really instrumental in in what became the kind of rugby experience or the Olympic experience or the Um, or eventually the FA experience. So um, I I do count myself as being really fortunate that um, there wasn't a lot of competition around at that time. Like I I really don't envy the graduates of today trying to get right into the sports market because there's so much competition. Now, that's great for sport because the qualities of people coming through have been far better than it was when I was there. I I genuinely count myself as very lucky. I'm not sure I would have survived now. But um, all of those experiences taught me something different. So maybe, I mean, maybe if you wish, we could go into some of them in a little bit more detail. But, you know, they they, they all brought something very different because um, if we focus on England rugby for a second, that was really the experience there broadly was the experience of working in a small team, directly supporting a national team. So it's like a a small business within the rugby football union, and it was fairly autonomous. So Clive's team operated, relatively speaking, in a bubble. It didn't have an awful lot of connection to pathways or anything else. It was quite autonomous. Um, the Olympics was really different, again, because the British Olympic Association doesn't tell cycling what to do or rowing what to do. They work with along and alongside them to make sure at games time you can deliver. So that gave me a really, a really interesting perspective to see how lots of different sports operated, and also get some experience of some sort of more structural leadership and management of a bigger entity and organisation, leading up to a definitive event. You know, so not um, not so much of the day to day. It's it's saying, look, this thing is happening in three and a half years' time. It's not going to move. You've you've got to deliver at, at that point so that was really interesting and then in between those experiences I spent quite a lot of time working in and around football clubs doing things like performance audits going in and working with the leadership teams and saying okay what have you got what feels like it's aligned to where you're trying to go where are some of the areas that you could really start to dial up and, and improve upon um, and some of that you know, fed directly forwards into the experience at the FA, which is very different again, you know, again, a governing body, but very different in the sense it was a really big transformational change project as opposed to maybe some of the others. Maybe rugby was to some extent, the BOA was not, it was more of a, you know, a a delivery project.
0: And, you know, what you said there really is remarkable. You had a depth and a breadth of education prior to obtaining that role within the FA. You know, just for everybody listening, just for the purposes of this conversation, I mean, when I mentioned football and you mentioned football, automatically we're reverting to English football, what we know as, you know, de facto, de-type. And for years, you know, I was questioning, you know, why isn't football, be it English football, you know, why aren't they cross-pollinating, why are they operating in silos, why aren't they taking as much from different industries? kind of growing up and meeting other professionals in the industry be they in Germany in France in Spain on the continent certainly in the US they're more than willing to kind of cross-pollinate from different industries you think it's a cultural issue within England or do you think it's just solely related to football?
1: Um, That's a great question I'm not sure I've given it Enough thought, but let let me tell you. I guess let, let me talk from my own own experience on that, uh, or uh, maybe to try and answer it. May, maybe I can give a perspective of of the influences on my decision. So, um, if I go back to rugby and working with with Clive, um, Clive was inspirational for a couple of reasons. One, because he was pretty visionary. He was never happy with how things were. He's he was a great possibility thinker. So. And and what was great about that is that he had a brilliant ability to, to dramatize the mission. You know, in other words, to say, look, we're going there and this is how we're going to get there, broadly speaking, and, and make it really exciting and make everybody want to get on that journey with him. He never saw any of the obstacles in the path. You know, so we never, sometimes we would look up and go, oh, my God, we're going where? How on earth are we going to do that? What about this, this, and this? He wasn't interested in that. And he created an environment where it was okay to fail, it was okay to try things. He actively encouraged us never to follow what other people were doing, to, to by all means take account of what they were doing. But um, his call to action for us was very much we've got, if we're going to achieve, we're going to have to do it differently. I want us to be ahead. And the way to be ahead is by thinking beyond where others are at the moment. So, you know, in that era, this kind of conceptual idea of thinking vertically and horizontally. So vertically being what are all the things that we all have to do? Coach, travel, condition, et cetera. Every rugby team, football team is doing that. If we go vertically, how do we do that better than anybody else does it? Um, and then horizontally is what are the things that no one else is doing in this space yet? So at that time, specialist coaching, vision coaching, culture, etc. That that would be an example of you know horizontal thinking. How do we plug something in here that maybe adds value, that helps to take us forward? So that was quite a um, influencing environment for me to, to to be into. It was an incredibly exciting one because. The freedom that gives you when you've got a leader who says, look, come on, just let's really throw the kitchen sink at this. How can we really think differently was was powerful. And I guess I'm reluctant to speak about football in general, English football in general, because there are pockets of real excellence and people genuinely trying to think differently. I caught up with Rasmus Ankersen for an hour yesterday. He's, He's one of those guys. Right. He's prepared. to to really think differently and we we had some real commonality of thought on a number of areas but maybe to lean into what you're saying a little bit I think what's hit me at times when I've been out of it is just the sheer scale and size of, of football and and also the professional journey many people have into football of course there are a number of people who've come from the professional ranks of players into coaching and then from coaching into leadership and management so To some extent, that journey has prevented an awful lot of exposure elsewhere. You don't have to go back too many years to see that there were an awful lot of educators who would have come into that space, who would have brought their educational experience in it. But but maybe as the game has been professional longer than most, the the, the journeys people have taken have become a little bit more homogenous, perhaps. Um, So there's that aspect to it. But I think what you also have to say is that there is a mindset thing there. I mean, in, in, if those are the journeys everybody's taking, then they tend to be the journeys that most people think are the journeys you need to take to be successful. Now there are exceptions to that. I mean, take someone like you know Martin Pert at, at Man United. You know, a, a good friend of mine as well. I knew Martin when he was a young kind of fitness coach at Watford in A. D. Boothroyd's era you know martin's a great example of someone who's actively gone out to seek different experiences inside and outside football to to really try and try and round himself out but i i still think it's relatively unusual and and maybe the where those two thoughts come together is is back to clive you know my mindset is very much if we're trying to win or achieve something which represents winning for the club that we're involved in so for your you know winning for you guys in dubai will look different from winning in man united or winning at brentford but once you understand what winning is there is no you know off the shelf recipe for that, that 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 in my opinion that works for everybody there is a unique recipe of factors or recipes of factors there is no one solution that you can knit together to produce that outcome. And I guess what I see, not in every case, but I see more often than not is a relatively homogenous approach to that. So, so if you said, and, and maybe to give this as an example, um, if I ask the question to, let's say we have five Premier League coaching teams in the in room together. And I say, right, if we just think about coaching Tell me how your team, Chelsea, has a competitive coaching advantage over Everton. What are the things that you do differently or better that give you a competitive advantage over this coaching team over here, which after all you're competing against? So forget about the players you've got, the talent you've bought. At some level, coaching is having an impact. What is it about how you're coaching that creates a competitive advantage? Now, I don't know those guys, and I don't know how they would answer that question. But having worked with, with others in that space, often they're a bit perplexed by the question. You know, and, and to me, that comes into this piece about, well, you know, we're, so the answers are often, well, we just we just coach and we, you know, the structure of our week and all that. But when you compare them to each other, they're often very similar. The structures of the week look about the same. Um, the way they're coaching looks about the same. So when I take a a step back with the benefit of having lots of different experiences, I'm fortunate enough to be able to say, you know, they're not different at all. But if you thought about, you know, these different ways of approaching that conundrum, you can create a competitive advantage in that space if, if you wish. Now, there are examples of clubs who've done that and continue to do that. And. You know, maybe if, if you look at Jurgen Klopp's entry into Liverpool at the, at the start, the appearance that, that I had from the outside work was that he was pretty innovative around the way he was thinking about that. And then others caught up with that. But I suppose what I don't see an enormous amount of, or at least publicly hear about, is, is this sort kind of constant innovation about some of these maybe more basic areas or funda- not basic, but fundamental areas l- like coaching. Because after all, coaching is still the biggest lever we pull in performance terms on the field. And so if you only think about coaching through the lens of football and you only reference football coaching, even if it's the best football coaching in the world, I think you miss a massive opportunity of looking at coaching more broadly and go, well, coaching is just about learning. It's, it's really about how do we optimise the, the, the development and understanding of players to, in order to perform on a high stage. And I guess I've been pretty lucky to see some amazing development environments at senior team level in lots of different sports around the world. And they do genuinely look different. And I think if you bring the the mindset that says all that's different is the application, that the people in there are not different. There's nothing different about footballers per se that means they can't take on board information like basketball players or hockey players or anything else. And, and, and that, that, that sometimes will have heard a little bit. And it's a common, it's a common feature of experiences when you change sports and having spoken to a lot of industry leaders, it's a common experience they have when they change industry, which is that at some point someone sort of puts an arm around your shoulder and says, yeah, look, I know it worked over there. You know, I know it worked in Olympic sport, but we're different. You know, football's different. They're all, they're not like rugby players. And you kind of go, okay, so so what do you mean by that? They're not like rugby players. Well, you know, rugby players are all really smart, and they all went to university, and they all like getting in front of the group and and speaking up. And and you kind of go, well, number one, how do you know that? Because you've never. Have you have you ever worked in it? So do you, do you know that as a fact, or is that your impression? And number two, having because I have worked in there, I can genuinely say they're not any different. What what's different? You know, there are the smart, intelligent ones. They are the there are the guys who are shy. They are the guys who are not as intelligent. They are there are the all the same types of personality exist. All the same types of capability is, is exist exist. What's different is the environment and the expectations that are created around them. And so um, that's where I think that the opportunities lie through perspective. So it's when, when you go away and look at something different, to my mind, the, the mindset you bring back has to be, how do I bring some of this into my environment rather than going away? And what I've heard in the worst cases from some, from some people in football and, you know, I want to reiterate football is full of brilliant people. I'm talking about some where they just go, well, it's that would never work in in our stuff because X, Y, and Z or the players wouldn't like it, or whatever. And I just think that's nonsense. That's just that's small-minded, closed-minded, and often just protectionist of the of the status quo that suits that individual, rather than being really about how do we take this game forward, how do we you know, how do we help players improve more quickly? So, sorry, that was an incredibly long-winded answer.
0: No, it's fascinating insight and detail. Um, I have multiple points to tackle, but one of which is your point on coaching. Um, I'm not sure, have you ever read Mastery by Robert Green?
1: Yes, I have.
0: Yeah, he has a great quote inside that book about, you know, competence comes before language. And yes. for me, the art to coaching really is narrowing that gap over time, so to speak. You know, yeah. I best football you see is just you know, there aren't really patterns of play, it's just intuition. Yeah. You know, it's predictable. And yeah. you know, as well, you speak about Sir Clive Woodward there and being a great storyteller. And to go on a journey, you do need a great storyteller. And recently enough, back in June, as of June, you spoke about, you reflected upon your initial time with the FA when you joined um, in alignment with the Brazil 2014 World Cup. If you don't mm-hmm. mind me saying that if you had this quote, where you remarked there was a team of highly committed and knowledgeable people working incredibly hard to deliver. But compared to my experiences in rugby and Olympic sport, there was a glaring lack of common understanding about what mattered. A clear purpose or strategies to align all of the effort into purposeful or efficient plan. In your opinion, do you believe this kind of set the precedent as to many of the reasons why the national team had stagnated over time?
1: um yeah look there were there were there were lot of factors at play at the fa at the time and you know it's important to say uh roy hodgson who was the coach at the time was actually very open-minded himself to to the possibility of doing things differently and i was also incredibly respectful of his incredible career as as a club coach and you know he's he's reiterated and underlined that through his, his last work at Crystal Palace. So uh, it's important to say it was, that was not a personal dig at anybody in that, in that uh, environment. It was more an organizational flaw as I saw it, which was that <clears throat> the organization that, the, that I joined at the time um, hadn't taken its role in delivering elite performance seriously, in my opinion. So they kind of almost got to a stage where they were in charge of the destiny of England teams, um, but they they kind of saw that as just uh, well we we get these players it's not really up to us who they are um, we'll we'll do the best we can with the ten days we've got with them for a camp or for the few weeks for a tournament but you know we just our players aren't really as good as some other nations and we can't really do an awful lot about it. I mean, that's a very simplistic, generic um, summary, but it was essentially that. And what I loved about Greg Dyke's vision was he was sticking his neck out and saying, we should be better than that. You know, we, sh- there's no reason why with our playing base and our resources that we shouldn't have the ambition of being at the top of the world and winning again. But the gap between his ambition and the capability within and the mindset of the organization was was vast. So it, it wasn't just, um, you know, what, the, what I referred to there in terms of capability was the capability to say, okay, we're going to win at some point in the future. If we work back from that, we need to understand exactly where we are today. Where are our capabilities in relation to our competitors? what are the things that we probably can't do an awful lot about and we should just leave to one side acknowledge and leave to one side where are the areas that if we're prepared to be humble enough uh we can we can really lean into and think differently to create an advantage that others don't have that can accelerate the the closing of this of this gap and that thinking wasn't really there at all at the time so i guess you know through dan Ashworth's leadership and and some of the people that he brought in were able to start to build that mindset, but build the capability within the organisation to start to build a system that could start to achieve that, rather than just some people who themselves could 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 be could deliver that.
0: Of course, where you came into play, Dave, was really you know when you came into the building, there was that process of change. You yeah. left essentially there was a winning strategy in place, but during that time. I mean, you had penned a document on what it takes to win, which is a fantastic read. And I would implore everybody listening to this podcast to go read it too. But what were the steps involved in getting the train of momentum moving during your time at the FA?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I guess the, the first step is, you know, beyond the excitement of this ultimate goal of 2022, you, you've then got to, you got to take a big step back and as i said establish where you are at the moment what does capability look like at the moment so if you like an internal benchmarking or auditing process the the next thing we did was kind of put together a bit of a scope of work so that the the england dna existed in the sense of the the five areas of of activity but when we started there was nothing inside them if it was basically a powerpoint slide with five five hexagons on it from how we play to who we are and there was nothing underneath it so the next thing we did was was look at what are all the things that we're probably going to need to think about over the next eight years that are going to contribute to this living and breathing um, dna transforming what we do so that's everything from now if we take how we coach what are the things that we're going to need to do to create a dna it's actually about how we coach. So what will exist in the future that doesn't exist now that will underpin that that, that part of our, our DNA? And then we started to break that down into activities and, 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 and or, or before that need. So who are we going to need to start to build that capability? What are the skills and attributes they're going to need to bring? What's the organizational design which is going to allow us to go from where we are today, which was. An organization with very few full time staff focus on England teams, so one that's embracing all these areas of potential of doing it differently, what does that all design look like. And how much is that going to cost us to do how many of the people who currently are in the building are capable of moving into some of those roles that are going to be different roles and how many are not. Um, and then. In terms of what it looks like next, where are we going to get the next generation of talent from? You know that. So there's there's a whole load of stuff there. And then that once you've started that train, of course, you get into this this messy personal process of change, because although we can talk about change on an organizational level, it has a personal impact on people. You know? mm-hmm. So there are there are people in there at the beginning um, who might be on that journey with you right away to the end. You know, and there'll be people in that on that journey at the beginning who are absolutely terrified because they're not sure if they've got the skills to come with you, but they really want to. And so they need supporting and helping to develop. And there are other people who think I'm, I'm scared and I, I don't want to do that. That's not me. I don't believe in it. I don't want to. I don't want to go there. And that becomes a really messy period of change because you, you get some very tough decisions that get taken about people leaving organizations and um, so that's that's never nice it's never easy I've been on the other side of that myself and at the time I felt they were all wrong and I was right and sometimes that's the case but it wasn't in mine I I actually when I look back I was wrong they were right and but as a leader you've just got to you've got to back yourselves to say believe this is the right direction you've got to try and do everything you can to to move that process through as as kindly as you can but with a clear uh clear ambition that this is where we're going so that you don't leave people with any uncertainty because as you go through change um many people in the initial stages will be in that phase of denial you know and even what happens is sometimes in that phase of denial They'll try and prove you, look, you you wrong by just working even harder at the way that they used to do it. And sometimes that even produces a performance improvement in the short term, but never in the long term. So you, you have to be able to say to people, look, we are changing. You know, this isn't going to stop. This is this train's left the station. So you have the option to get on it and we'll support you. Or if it's not for you, well, you know, let's shake hands and move on. And then after you get through that piece, you can really start to get once you get some capability there, then you can really start to get down to the nitty gritty of of doing it and producing stuff. So whether that's the coaching model and and Matt Crocker's brilliant work about how are we going to coach? What's our philosophy of coaching? How are we going to develop people to execute that through to what capability do we need to build in our support teams to, to really create a competitive advantage around analysis or data or How can we build a cultural framework and how can we build the capability in our people to execute that such that this amazing history of English football can begin to mean something to a current generation such that maybe it starts to approach the level of passion that we see from other nations that maybe we hadn't seen from England? You know, so all of those sort of things end up being projects and activities that you need to gravitate around. And of course, they can't all happen at the same time. You can't just go from nothing to, right, we've now got 100 things that we're all charging at. You have to be able to say, right, over this eight-year period, in what order do we need to do these things? And have we got enough capability to do these things in the right order? So then you have to start prioritising. And I guess where it tips into the what it takes to win stuff is along that journey, you've got to be really clear, in my opinion, about what matters most. So... You know, for, for us, there was no point at the beginning worrying about the fact that Germany or France had far more players playing A-grade football than England did, because it was kind of out of our control. Um, so, but what we could do something about was the fact that we didn't even have a scouting system in place. There was, there was at the start, there was nobody scouting England players other than a very small group of of full-time coaches who also had other jobs in other parts of the fa so you you know the stuff like that was just a glaring gap so okay well let, let let's fix that to start with that's an obvious one um but then as you move forward you start to get into maybe some more um interesting discussions about what it takes to win so let's say, team operations, how the team travels, where it stays, all those kind of things. Those things were pretty good in many respects at the FA. If you'd have thrown a load more resource into that, would that have made the team 100% better? Well, not not in my opinion, because that was already pretty good. Doesn't mean it's not important, just means it's about where it needs to be. Meanwhile, over here, coaching, support, culture, all these are nowhere near where they need to be if we're going to win. So trying to create a collective understanding for everybody that just because we're not investing more into that area doesn't mean it's not important. It's really important. And it doesn't mean that you shouldn't continue to try and be innovative and move things forward, but just be aware of where it fits into the, the, the pantheon of all these other things that we need to do and trying to get people to understand that from their own perspective, I think is a really important part of cohesiveness in a team. You know, I think what happens a lot in sport is we have this implicit understanding that what the coach says is, is goes. So therefore, coaching is the most important thing. Whereas maybe we should ask ourselves the question, is the coach the best person to make that decision about all of this stuff? And maybe that's what we did differently at the FA was, you know, the coach is not king all of the time. You have to look at the, the skills the coach has or what are the skills they need to have to deliver and, and often it might not be in their skill set to make really good rational decisions about how do we decide the composition of all of these other components. So um, you know there, there were, there's, there's an awful lot in that answer. there's an awful lot more I could go into into specific detail, but I, I think cohesiveness in a team comes from everyone being aligned behind a vision, everyone really understanding, what is going to deliver that vision, and then everyone understanding what their role is within that, and I mean that explicitly, not just implicitly. You know, I think it's important people really hear it and hear it consistently, so they can they can they can get aligned to it.
0: And of course, when you're leading that cultural change, you need followers. And what I'm most interested about, perhaps, Dave, to explore, is that of getting buy-in because it's very much, it's a delicate balance. I mean, you spoke about the results equation before being performance multiplied by connection. On the other hand of the seesaw, we see, you know, in the What It Takes to Win document with Mike Ford, you explain winning as being ruthlessly pragmatic about action. How did you manage that delicate balance over time? What were the conversations that were had?
1: Yeah, look, I think um, (laughs) probably at times clumsily if I'm, if I'm perfectly honest, you know, I, I suppose I'm I'm a fairly action orientated guy. So what I've learned over the years is that um, when you have an action bias, what you can often go to very quickly is just getting stuff done. And um, you know, the quote that I love that reflects that most is, you know, kind of if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Right. And but if you're action orientated, yeah okay I want to go far but god this is taking ages because I've got I've all these flaming conversations with everybody like if only they just do what I told them to do we'd get there a lot quicker well that that's clumsy right it it really underestimates the value of, of individual people's understanding of where you're trying to go so look I, I'm sure people who left the organization early would say oh well, you didn't ever take the time or you didn't understand I have a different perspective I think for me as we got into that process and we started to hire the people who were who, who were going to take it forwards with us, making sure that I spent the time reiterating the story to them and, and I guess triangulating between the vision, this is where we're going and this is what we're trying to do, the challenge, which is these are the things we really need to push through and get better at, and the support, right? What do you need from me, from us? to allow you to, to, to do that, that, that navigating that triumvirate is, is essentially what I think you're talking about, which is the connections piece, you know, connection to the vision, connection to the standards, you know, that we're trying to achieve by the chat, uh, the challenge, and then connection to the support. What, what do we need to give you time, resources, people to, to, to do that. Um, so, you know, within that, So that's the people dynamic of it for me. And then outside of that, I guess the ruthlessly pragmatic and action orientated piece probably comes into that challenge bucket. And if you think about the extremes of that model I've talked about, if, if if you're all vision, no challenge, no support, how does that feel? Well, maybe inspirational to start with, but you're directionless. You don't know what the hell you're doing. You might even find, well, I don't feel like I'm being pushed very much equally if there's no vision loads of challenge no support well you're just going to feel beaten up every day and you don't know where you're going and then if it's all support no challenge no vision well, it's a lovely place to work but you're never going anywhere so it's a constant re- re-evaluation of those three axes when you're communicating with people and trying to understand what do they need at the moment and and maybe Probably the biggest lesson I've learned over ten years is is just listening, and and you know sometimes listening and 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 trying to see what they're not saying as much as what they are saying, and, and trying to understand what's really going on for them.
0: And who were the key cultural architects, I suppose, Dave, that were helping you in delivering that consistent message? And furthermore, in addition to that, were there any suppose early key milestones that helps you process the change that bit quicker?
1: Yeah, I mean, look. So people like Dan Ashworth, Dan was critical, of course, because he was really leading the change on behalf of the of the technical division. Matt Crocker, similarly, as part of that leadership team, was a was a critical, um, you know, was another critical part of that because he was running the coaching piece of that. Gareth, very much in the early stages, when he was less of the coach and more part of that leadership team, and had the history, was was part of that as well, and then as we went forward, kind of more of the senior um, members of my leadership team, so Kate Baker and, and Reese Long and Bryce Kavanagh, uh, Charlotte Cowie, um, that they were all, you know, part of it because essentially part of my role was really get some great people in and then just get the hell out of their way. You know, it was let them, let them get on and be great at their jobs. So um, I suppose at the, at the beginning, it was probably dan matt myself and, and 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 gareth fundamentally we were the guys we used to work you know used to meet early on a monday morning after a four o'clock get up in the morning to to start to talk about this stuff and i think you know i would give dan enormous credit because from a personal perspective he allowed me to be he probably wanted me to be the disruptor a bit, you know, he wanted me to bring some disruptive thinking to it. And I'm sure I was a complete pain in the backside at times for him, but, you know, he he should take enormous credit for um, managing that. And I suppose I was bringing that Clive Woodward disruptive thinking angle. I was bringing the external perspective, probably more than anyone else in that group was capable of doing, but that didn't mean I was right all the time you know what it meant was I could bring that in and then that group had to filter it and try and mold it into something that was going to work for that organization at, at that time so all of us would have taken different um, roles and different aspects in leading that change I think.
0: you see, Nicholas Taleb wrote a great book on stress test and fragility of systems which was anti-fragile and um, a favorite story of mine recently is Netflix Their software engineers developed a system called Chaos Monkey, I believe, where they stress tested their own system, crashing servers at will. I suppose, you know, in international football without a World Cup or a Euros to look forward to, would you have any events or any chances to actually stress test what you and everyone else, including Dan Ashworth, were putting into place?
1: No, I mean, it's it's tricky because one one of the trickiest things about international sport is you don't play very often. So... You know, your capacity for... So, so what you have in your favour is more time to plan, research, make things robust. But what you have is many fewer opportunities to get data on how you're doing, you know, because because most teams, junior otherwise, will play 10 games a season uh, or so. And then on top of that, maybe they, they're in a, a finals competition. So it's very few. And so you stress testing is tough. You've got to almost because so if you look at that data set it's poor if you if you're reliant on outcomes from that data set you're probably going to end up in a in a different direction than the one you want to go into so it becomes kind of difficult if you're looking at an outcome basis to, to to do it so i guess the extent to which we use feedback was more about what behavioral changes we were seeing within our staff but that was predicated on having a vision about how it could look in in the future so it's you know maybe it's it becomes less about how did the under 17s or under 18s get on in this particular game and it becomes more about how are they preparing how are they coaching what are we how are we seeing behavioral change take place in our players or our or our staff so one of, one of the things to to lend some evidence to that one of the things that Matt and I did very early on probably in the first year we went off down to the new forest Uh, for a couple of days um, and tried to wrestle with this concept of so what we're trying to see as the outputs of this program so in other words if we've got this vision of the future in 2022 and we start to chunk that down into let's say let's take one example let's take leadership what do we want player leadership to look like in 2022 So that we might say, well, we want players who are capable of taking much more ownership of their own development. We want them to be in a position where they can lead team meetings or unit meetings. They can really take responsibility on the field and make decisions. So let's say they're they're the outcomes we want. Okay, so what does that need to start to look like all the way down the pathway in in respect of leadership? And you can use that analogy for almost anything so the game model for physical conditioning for all of those different things if you begin to imagine that under the headings of the dna so then within how we play who we are etc etc underneath each of those big headings were a whole load of subheadings that then got eventually got rolled out into a program of expectations for each age group so um you know that I think was a really important piece of work to start to set a framework that others then began to populate that, 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 that really, you know, became, you know, a really good detailed DNA.
0: And then you have the face of the English national team, Garrett Southgate on the touchline. You know, we began this discussion talking about the area of coaching and um, we've yeah. of this discussion. We're speaking about the support framework and network, which Southgate has to me now it makes total sense as to why he's, manager of the English national team and will continue to do so for quite a while
1: yeah I mean I think with Gareth you know unique individual in many many ways not least from his enormous intellectual curiosity to go and look at different things and and certainly also in terms of the power of his relationship skills I think the other thing to to say with him is that or, or not necessarily about him but I used to use this phrase an awful lot, international is different, right? So I use that in two different ways. If we talk about international is different, that talks about the fact that the schedule, the time together, the intermittent nature is very different from club football. So in one sense, why would we do what clubs do when what we're actually facing is really different? You know, We're together 24 hours a day for 10 days at a time, and then for maybe six or seven weeks in a World Cup. Clubs are together six, seven hours a day, most of the week, and maybe a bit longer at the weekends or around game time. Right, so there's there's that piece. But what that what that begets in a coach or a leader is a different skill set. Right, so I think it's fair to say if you go back through the history of England managers, many preceding me. So listening to what colleagues have said, they've tended to come from club football. And for many of them, there's this kind of moment where they get a bit shocked by Bloody hell! This isn't like club football, and you kind of well, no, it's not, is it? Right. So, so Gareth understood that because he's been through that journey. He's been th- he's been a club manager, but he's been with the FA in different roles for a long period of time. So he intuitively and experientially gets that it is different, and I do think that's a really really important thing. And that the, that understanding coupled with his skill set, and I hope some of the work that was done to build capability and approach in the organisation has created a set of circumstances for him. And I, and I really hope he goes on for a long period of time, but it does beg the question of, okay, so who's, who's next? And my personal view is, um, unless you bring someone with a really clear mindset about how different international is, and they've either experienced it or they're very well prepared for it coming in, then you're going to probably see a period when they underperform because they're just, they won't get it. And then some of the things that they've used successfully in a club environment, they'll find won't work internationally. So, you know, your ability to get players connected, switched on, understanding is much more limited in an international frame. Your, your need for storytelling and inspiration is probably heightened. You know, your, your need to be able to lean into... Um, A quick empathy for how players will be when they arrive is really important. Your capacity to be agile about how learning needs to happen needs to be more refined because if you just think learning is going to happen on the field in an international week, you're going to be sorely disappointed because there just aren't that many training sessions. And if that's the only tool in your box, in my view, you're going to fail because... Um, you know, you probably between arriving on a Sunday and maybe playing on a Wednesday and a Thursday, you might get one decent training session. And if if you're thinking that's the thing that's going to make the difference, uh, yeah. you're on the back foot straight away. But if you think about it from the perspective of what are all the multitude of different ways learning can happen in this period of time, you know, then you're onto something, but you need to have experienced that. And then oftentimes, club. Club management doesn't necessarily prepare you for that because they're not circumstances that you've had to, to worry too much about, perhaps.
0: Yeah, forget marginal gains, it seems like <laughs> getting back to basics. But I know, um, yeah, I know you've begun that point by saying international football is different, but just curious to touch upon one institution that's about to undergo significant operational and organisational change, which, of course, is Newcastle United. I mean, from your own experience working within the FA and several other institutions, have you got any advice for the new owners or do you think it's drastically different from what you've experienced before?
1: Look, I, 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 I couldn't advise them directly. All I can talk about is what I see as the, the key principles when you're trying to create success. So for me, it very much starts with a very clear vision of where... You, why you exist and where you're trying to go. And I think in a club environment, that's uh, maybe particularly with a club like Newcastle, it's important because you're dealing with an incredible supporter base. You're incredibly passionate about where they think that club should be. And so <laughs> the, the, the tricky thing there is if you if you move towards what they really would like to hear, which is probably we're going to be Champions League, Finalists or champions, we're going to win the Premier League, then you're in danger of creating a bar for yourself, which is incredibly difficult to manage. So I think giving yourself some runway to say, yes, the ambition is to be there, and it might take us 10 years to get there or whatever, you know, a bit like our experience at the FA. If Greg Dyke had come out and uh, he'd, he'd come out in 2018 and said, we're going to win the World Cup two years later or whatever. I think everyone would have, uh, sorry, if, if you're going to say in 2018, said we're going to win the World Cup in 20, 2022, I don't think I'd have ever joined because I just thought you, you're mad. No chance. No, it's never happening. So I think you've got to give yourself the runway to, to go forward. And then I think you've got to, again, I'm, this is not specific in Newcastle. This is any organisation I would work with. It, it's It's spending the time to understand what you've got, what's unique about it what are what are those unique factors that are really in your favor that are things that nobody else can can do or nobody else has whether that's a fan base or a city or a training ground or whatever it is and and then between those things start to think about how you with your resources can gain competitive advantage against your competitors in pursuit of this goal so that's the process of designing a strategy and a plan which is gonna execute this. And, and I guess I would <coughs> probably just try and avoid the conventional would be my last point because convention very rarely wins anything. And just repeating uh, repeating the same stuff that everyone else is doing is unlikely to close the gap too fast from, from, from where you're gonna be. So I'm a firm believer that every organization needs to have its own unique recipe by which I mean strategy of how it's going to achieve its goals and spending time um, talking to your people about each of those elements is a really, really valuable part of the journey. And and your people, meaning internally, your, your staff, your prospective staff, your current staff, but also what part of that externally are you continuing to educate your supporters on? Because they can kill you really quickly if, if their expectation was that all you need to do is go and buy a load of talent, then next year will be fine. But if you can articulate the journey to them and they can see evidence of how that journey's coming through, whether that's developing local talent or they see better connection to the community or they see the values that they're espousing in their club starting to be, to be part of it. And they see enough success. They'll give you more time, I think, but the devil's in the detail, you know, and I think what we I don't know what Newcastle have done, but we've seen enough clubs, I think, still make mistakes where they they go. Or right, the first thing we need to do is go and find a really high profile manager who, who fits our vision and will, you know, we hope it works. He's, he's been really good somewhere else. Um, you know, it needs to be a name because we're a big club and 50 percent at least times that doesn't work or it works for a year, and then it all falls apart. You know, Man, Man United have been through that, right? So over preceding years. So I think taking time to understand who you are as a club, you know, what's unique about you, what are the values, and what's the method allows you to make the right appointments. If you just rush into making appointments before you've done the other stuff, I think you're at risk of making a huge number of mistakes and, and wasting a lot of money.
0: And as we begun this podcast with one of your quotes, we're going to begin to contact to close now with another one from the What It Takes to One document. The problem is that if you do not recognize when you have been lucky, you can fool yourself into thinking that your performance was the result of your own genius. It rarely is. Understanding why and how you won is the key to sustaining success. I mean, ultimately, Dave, are you satisfied? Are you confident that the foundations you put in place will be upheld to this very day and beyond? for the effort
1: um no no i'm not i can't i mean i i don't know but i know the organization's been through an awful lot of change i think um at senior team level i think they're in good shape um you know there's a core group of people there i think who've been on the journey and understand it and have a relatively robust methodology i think their challenge is more one of uh continuing to be prepared to be brave and to push through the next piece it's like the way i look at that senior team is they've kind of they're on the hillary step of everest if you like and they've they've been there for a bit and you can see the summit and you've brought a load of gear with you that's got to that point so for those guys there's some great people in that organization it's the bravery for me having been through it in other sports is Are you prepared to leave some stuff behind on the Hillary step that got you there, but won't get you to the, to the summit? And sometimes they are tough decisions because it's generally not, not quite the same stuff that's going to get you to the summit to get you over that line consistently for the wider organization. I think there's been a huge amount of change. There's been changes of leadership. Um, My sense is there's been quite a change of philosophy that's, that's come as a result of that. And look, I'm not, arrogant enough or naive enough to to say well it was all right when we were there and we were all fantastic we we weren't you know I think we did some good things but in in periods of change and and when you're dismantling stuff that's been in place for a long time you're inevitably going to see some consequences of that and my my understanding at least is that a lot of good people have left um, and I guess what I worry about is whether The organization truly understands winning and and what had contributed to some of the success of those junior teams and whether there is a continuing overinvestment into some of those areas that create competitive advantage, or whether maybe it's migrating to more of a a club style model or something that's a bit more familiar to, to, to those who've worked in the game for a long time. I really hope I'm wrong because I think the um what you hold in your hands in those organisations, national teams is incredibly precious because it's, you know, it's beyond winning football games. It's beyond inspiring a city. You you know, you have the chance to inspire a nation. It genu- I mean, it genuinely is a transformational thing. So, you know, I've said before that, you know, when we won rugby world cup in 2003 and, you know, I was, I was stood on the top of an open top bus going down Regent Street with a million people on the street. Right. And we said this to the England footballers, imagine that moment in a football world cup win. Imagine, you know, you can't even begin to imagine it would make that rugby experience look like a garden fate or something. It'd be like, imagine what that does for a nation. So that, that expectation is a big one for an organization to take on. And I think it deserves really serious thought about the weight of that responsibility because, Creating those moments is, is not just transformational for the organization, it's transformational for generations of people who come after you. So, <laughs> you know, I, I think you've got to take it seriously. I think I think you've got to do it systematically. And although the FA has a really wide and in, really important remit across participation and regulation and everything else, and I know I'm biased, but I can't think of anything that's more likely to help some of those other things succeed than than England teams winning. And so um, I hope they get it right. But I, I, I must admit, I do have some doubts about where things have started to go, perhaps. But I hope I'm I'm hope I'm wrong in all of those regards and good luck to them.
0: I'm bringing it back all to the start before you underwent this remarkable career journey, Dave. You were just, you know, like everyone else, just coming out as a sport, sports graduate, young practitioner looking for work. What advice would you have for those in their shoes today that would be looking to try to similar path to yourself?
1: Um. Well, funny, Connor. Just listening to you right at the start when we were talking off off camera, I guess I've been really. I was really impressed listening to you. You know, going and getting and seeking some different experiences. I still think that's at the at the core of this. So I think, um, having the strength of character to be, to to have an idea of what path you want to take but not being afraid to deviate from that you know kind of having the curiosity to say it might feel like a right turn away from my path but what can I learn from that different experience I think for for me that's still um, that's the practical piece around intellectual curiosity it's not just reading the books or talking about stuff it's going to immerse yourself in something different Um, that's probably the biggest thing I can I can imagine. So if if you want to be a football coach or you want to be a practitioner in football, that's your path. okay? what are there's going to be a lot of people on that path? There'll be certain things that are directly on that path that you'll need to do. But maybe my advice would be don't don't be afraid to walk off that path for a year or two or longer in order to come back to it, you know, and and uh, don't just. No, I, I suppose that the point about immersion is important to me. What I've what I found myself is there's a big difference between. If you like what I'd call the, the day tripper, you know, somebody you go and I'll go and see a sport for a day or go. There's a big difference between going on a day trip to going to live in somewhere for a year. So if sports are like countries, if I've lived in the country of football all my life. And I've read some books about the country of rugby and that that's great, right? But if I was to take a secondment from my country and go and live in the country of rugby or cricket or basketball for a year and then came back to my home country, how much better would I be? Like, you know, your journey in travelling has given you some really different experiences. I think my advice would be don't be afraid of those things really, really leans because you never know where those things are going to going to lead you. And, um, I probably think the second thing would be um, something I personally regret not having done more would be to to, to kind of document your journey, document what you believe in and why you believe in it. So almost like a journal as you go through your career, Um, because those experiences are going to lead to a whole load of thoughts that come into your mind. Which often get forgotten. So how how do you bring that mass of experiences and knowledge into something purposeful that that describes what you believe in and why you believe in it? So write yourself a book as you're going through your journey. You know the book of your philosophy, what you believe in and why you believe in it. And then every one of those experiences adds content to the chapters, or may even add a chapter to your book that helps you do that. So
0: that's yeah, that's. What that's some wonderful advice to close. Um, it's been an absolute inspiration listening to you or speaking with you over the last hour. Definitely need a nap now after this to kind of <laughs> I have that
1: effect on people.
0: <laughs> but um, no, I know you're incredibly busy. So thanks once again for coming on. No problem,
1: Connor. Really great speaking to you.